You know, I remember a trip, uh, talked a little bit of parts of it before, that Carrie and I took to California one time. Um, and uh, there's not a whole, whole lot of parts of California that I like. Um, Carrie had these, these ideas of what she wanted to see in her head. And then when we got to them, she was like, this is dirty. And I was like, yeah, you know, she wanted to see the Walk of Fame, and the Walk of Fame was just a sidewalk with all sorts of questionable people around, and it was just, you know, it wasn't what she thought it was going to be. And then we decided to take a drive uh, up the Pacific Coast Highway, and most of that's beautiful, but we uh, we accidentally got on south of L.A., uh, my plan was to have a nice breakfast somewhere along the way, looking out over the ocean. Right? That was the plan. But you went down the dirty road. Oh, that's part of it. We took, you know, it took three hours to get to LA that morning, that 20 mile stretch of highway, three hours. Um, and when we got out, you know, we found one place that was serving breakfast and it looked good, but parking was $50. So we said, uh, <laughs> not going there. Um, so we found Denny's uh, in a little bit. And then we decided that we weren't going to go that way anymore. We decided we were going to go through Yosemite. And we went to Yosemite. And Yosemite is absolutely breathtaking. And one of my favorite parts is the eastern side there. As you come out of the park, there's this drop. I mean, it's just, I don't know how many thousands of feet you go down, but you have to drive down the mountain. And uh, you get out, and there is a choice to make because you come out and you can go north or you can go south. North, there is a little town right there, but they know where they're at. And so this was how many years ago? Almost almost 18 years ago. So, and it was $197 a night for a hotel. I didn't have $197 for the hotel. So we said, we're gonna go south. We drove south. Uh, as you head towards Barstow, we began looking for a hotel. And uh, we there's there's one town there that uh, it's where they used to make all the old westerns. So it's this little bitty dot on the map. Okay. Those of you who've never used actual maps, <laughs> you may not understand what I'm saying here. But on the map, towns had different size dots for how big they were. This town had the tiniest dot, but there were 14 different hotels. And I was like, well, if this town has this many hotels, because it was still early, it was still like 3 o'clock, there's this many hotels, surely these other four here that are bigger are going to have more hotels. <laughs> nope. Found out that they used to film the westerns there, so there were hotels for that reason, and that's the only reason. Every other town, as you drove through it, they had one or two hotels that kind of reminded me of the Bates Motel in Psycho. And Carrie was like, I ain't staying there. So we kept driving and kept driving. And, you know, four and a half hours later, and we're, we're literally in the middle of the desert. I mean, we've just come out of this beautiful oasis of Yosemite with these just massive trees and the waterfalls and and all the all the splendor and all the beauty, and, and suddenly we're in the middle of this place where we can't find gas, we can't find 
food. We can't find a place to stay. And it's getting dark. And we're just struggling there in the middle of the desert. I believe that most of us go through that same thing spiritually sometimes. We go to our spiritual Yosemite. And the water's there. And it flows and refreshes our soul. And the trees and all the splendor. And when you, when you can go in the middle of August to the meadow at the top of the mountain and there's still ice, a guy like me is in heaven. <laughs> it's a great place to be. And, and I think spiritually we go through that. And we find ourselves coming out of this place that has everything we need and then we find ourselves in this place where we're searching for even a slight move of God. There have been so many instances in my life where I have just been like, God, I don't, I don't know. God, where are you? I, I don't understand. I would lay in bed and talk up and I felt like my words were hitting the ceiling and come back down. And, and I didn't know what was going on. And I would struggle through that. And then there were times when I would just go into autopilot to do the things that I knew I was supposed to do. You know, I would just, as they say, fake it until you make it. But the desert was there. And I wasn't finding what I wanted to find. And I think we've all been there. We've all found those places. We're going this week to start a new series in, in the Old Testament, in the book of Malachi, simply called Return to Me. Um, Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. It is the last prophet to speak. You know, God throughout the Old Testament has taken Israel and followed a certain pattern. He has said, you are mine. I love you. I want to bless you. I'm giving you this land. And if you will just do the things I've asked you to do, you'll always be in the land. And you'll be blessed and, and these things will overflow to you. But Israel, time and time again, fails miserably. So we find at the end of 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, they are carted off in the exile. They are taken out of their land and sent to places that they don't want to be. They are put somewhere that, that they that they don't want they don't want to hear, they don't want to know. We have great prophecies and even great psalms that come out of that period. And you know, I call them great psalms. Some of you may think I'm out of my mind, but you know, it's Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and we wept when we remembered tonight. There we hung up our lives on the poplar trees where our captors were asked us for songs. Our tormentors wanted us to rejoice, sing one of the songs of Zion. And it ends basically by saying, happy is the man who does what you did to us, who takes your babies and dashes them against the rock. That's Israel crying out in a land that they don't understand. But God hears their cry. He hears the prayers of the faithful, and they begin to return. We have the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and they rebuild the city, and they rebuild the temple, but something is missing. Their, their worship and their relationship with God as a country are anemic at best. 
They're not experiencing the presence of God like their forefathers did. They, uh, they kept talking about how things used to be. Right? That's what they did. Well, with Moses, he led us by fire, and he led us by a cloud. With, with David, he, he gave him gifts. And he would go through all these things, and they would think about what God had done, but they were not experiencing the presence of God like the forefathers had. And so God sends Malachi. And Malachi here, we don't know if Malachi is an actual person, or if it's the title, because Malachi literally means my messenger. God sends his messenger... To give the last word before the New Testament. This was spoken some 400 years before Jesus. And there's one thing throughout Malachi. Return to me. And there is a lot to say here for anyone who is now or will ever experience a spiritual desert. And this morning we're just in a few quick verses here in the first chapter of Malachi chapter 1. And there it started in verse 1. It says, An oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? This is the Lord's declaration. Even so, I loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. I turned his mountains into a wasteland and gave his inheritance to desert jackals. And though Edom says we will have been devastated, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says this, they may build, but I will demolish. They will be called a wicked country, and the people the Lord has cursed forever. Your own eyes will see this, and you yourselves will say, The Lord is great, even beyond the borders of Israel. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you right now, and we thank you, we praise you for your blessings. Father, we ask right now that you would take this time and use it for your glory. Father, use me as the vessel of the words that I speak to be yours and yours alone. Father, we thank you, we praise you, we ask all these things in Jesus' name, and all God's people say. Amen. Now you may go, Brother Troy, there's not a whole lot there. Those are six very weird verses. What are you going to do with it? Well, I'm not. God will, hopefully. As you read this, the first thing we have to realize here is that God has a burden for his people. The word here translated oracle in our modern translations it is more precisely translated the burden of the Lord. The burden of the Lord. God has a burden for his people. He has a burden. He has, he has this 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 weight, this this idea. Right from the beginning, there is this illumination of what God is trying to deal with with humanity. The message that God is going to give in this book isn't light. It's weighty. Both in character and in substance and in audience. It's weighty. There's something here. He's not willing to give up on those who have failed. He's not willing to write off those who may have written him off. Notice that the burden may be heavy, but it's not written against Israel, but to Israel. Now that's a very important part of this. Because so often in the prophets, we will read the, the words that say, the word of the Lord against a certain nation. That's not what's going on here. This is the burden of the Lord for Israel. This means it is there to build them up. It's not, it's not that. It's not all. This is against them. Israel, you failed. No, this is something that's going to change your lives if you'll just listen. It's going to change what you do if you'll just listen. It'll be who you need to be because God has a burden for his people. But the truth is God's burden comes from his love for his people. 
God wouldn't be burdened for his people if he didn't love his people. There wouldn't be any reason for him to be burdened if he didn't love his people. Because it's easy to write off things you don't love, right? One of our issues in our household is that I have a daughter who doesn't like to get rid of stuff. Every stuffed animal she owns has a name, has a personality, has a birth date, and all my friends and family don't help because they keep giving her more. And she has them, and she won't get rid of them. And why won't she get rid of them? Because she loves them. Because to her, there is a personality there. They have their own individual nature. And she doesn't want to get rid of these things that she loves. How many times do you have people in your life that you just want to walk away from, but you love them, and that gives you a burden for them? I'm done. And you want to walk away, but that love keeps pulling you back. That love makes you stop and say, I can't give up just yet. Just one more prayer. Just one more time. Just one more call. Just one more hug. How often do we find ourselves doing that? Because there's somebody that we love and we have a burden for. We can't, we can't give up yet. I can't stop. I can't stop. I got to keep going because that love propels me forward. The first thing we have to remember as we begin to think about returning to the love and passion that we had to have for God is that He loved us. He loved us. And He has shown us His love for us. You know, God doesn't start this book with this statement by accident. He doesn't start this by saying, I love you just for no reason. He's not trying to be manipulative. You know, He's not the... He's not the girlfriend. He says, well, if you love me, you know, you would buy me flowers. That's not God. God is saying, I've loved you. I have a burden for you because I love you. There's something on my heart that you need to know because I love you. I want to show you the way forward because I love you. He wants to make sure that those receiving this prophecy know that everything that's about to be said comes from love because it's all about love. He says, I have loved you. And Israel says back, how do you love this? <laughs> when I first began reading this, <laughs> I kept thinking, how arrogant. How arrogant. How have you loved this? This is God speaking. God saying, I have loved you. But then, I began to think about it. And I realized that we do the same thing all the time. Except we don't say, how you love this God? We say, God, you gave them blessings, but you didn't give them to me. God, you didn't answer the prayer that I asked you to answer. I was praying for it and praying for it and praying for it, and I didn't get the answer that I wanted. You didn't love me. My life just stays bad and it never gets good and I don't know what's going on. How have you loved me? We, we all get there sometimes. The world begins to speak into our lives more than God. We begin to hear these things. And it may be a shocking question, but it's a question so common that it's happened in every age since time began. And then God just answers. You know, uh, 
you know, parents, just you know, be honest with me. Do you find it hard sometimes? Well, some of you wouldn't you have to remember back when your kids were little. Do you find it hard sometimes when the sass comes out, I think it's sassy back? God doesn't get sassy back here. God, God doesn't argue. He just answers. He just answers. He said, okay. How have I loved you? And he tells them how he's loved them. He tells them these things. Through his discourse, we begin to see something of the nature of God's love that we sometimes forget. We claim to know it, but we live like we don't. Because the nature of God's love has some things that are shown here. For one, God's love is unchanging. It's unchanging. He says, I have loved you. And here our English fails us because our English doesn't have all the tenses that go into Hebrew and into Greek. The tense here makes this Hebrew to say a continuing love. I have always loved you. Not the Whitney Houston style, the God style. I have always loved you. I am loving you. I will continue to love you. I have loved you. I love you now. And I will always love you. His love doesn't change. It doesn't stop. It keeps on going. God's love is always the same. You know, there's a lot of talk out there in theological and philosophical circles about God and change. But what, what doesn't change about God isn't his thoughts. His thoughts are his to do what he wants to with it. God's love never changes. Because his love is his nature. That's who he is. And God is there. And he doesn't change. His love doesn't stop. It is always there. It is always faithful. I know how often I found myself, when I was a younger man, absolutely mad at God, doing things that I knew that would make God mad, and God's love never changed. He never said, I'm too mad, you can't come back. God isn't the parent that kicks you out and says, nope, you're done. God is the parent that says, I don't care what you've done, I don't care where you've gone, I love you, because my love is always there. And my love never changes. And my love is always going to be around. And it is for you. And it's always been for you. My burden is for you. My love is for you. My love doesn't change. God's love doesn't change. But God's love is unmerited. It's unmerited. We can't do anything to earn God's love. In verses 2 and 3, what's he say? Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? Even so, I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau. I turned his mountains into a wasteland and gave his inheritance to the desert jackals. And we, Edom says, we'll be devastated. We'll rebuild the ruins. We'll work hard. We'll do what we need to do. God says, no. Doesn't work that way. By all accounts, Esau should have been the blessed one. By the way the culture worked, by the son of the family, Esau was the firstborn. He was supposed to be the golden child. He was supposed to be the one that daddy says, here, it's all yours. But he wasn't. And we could go into all the discourse about what Jacob and his mama did and all that stuff. But the truth is God chose what was going to happen to Jacob and Esau long before the things that happened to Jacob and Esau happened to Jacob and Esau. There was no merit there. They didn't do anything to gain it. We know that Jacob didn't do anything to gain God's grace, to gain God's love. He was a scoundrel. I mean, he cheated people left and right. Uh, even to get the birthright. He, 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 he was... His brother comes in and says, I'm starving. Okay, I'll give you some food. If you'll sell me the birthright. That's family there, let me tell you. That's, that's the issue. 
When we find these things, we see that, that God's love is unmerited. He should have the inheritance. We should be members of spiritual Edom, but we're not. God chose to love and show favor to Jacob. And Jacob didn't earn, he didn't do anything to earn that favor. He didn't do anything to have that blessing. God chose it. He gave it to him. I mean, when you look at who he is, we go, oh. And some of the stories of Jacob are just unbelievable. But God still showed him grace and still showed him love and still showed him favor. I mean, how many of you ranchers in here have ever changed the color of your sheep or goats by having them drink water that had brush it? That's the story. That's what happened. That's how you know God's showing unmerited love and favor because that doesn't happen. I mean, you know, I can't go home and say, I want a green dog. I'm going to eat the grass. That dog's going to stay brown. That's the, dog, the dog's genetics. I, and so that's what we see God working. Does God truly hate Esau? We use that word hate. All right. Dear woman, let me ask, let me ask you that question. 20, what's the year? 23 years ago, I said, well, she walked up to me one day, she's Miss Fay. So, 23 years ago, I was 23 years old. Miss Fay was 101. She walked up to me, this lady, had read the Bible through cover to cover every year since she turned 60. So for 41 years. So for double my life, she'd been reading the Bible. And she came to me and she said, Why does it say that God hated Esau? God doesn't hate anybody. Well, this thing. Um, well, the truth is God doesn't hate Esau. Hate here isn't about that feeling of it's not it's not it's not the opposite of love. God's love is universal. His rejection of Esau had nothing to do with salvation or eternity, but with purpose. Hate here isn't this absence of love; it's the absence of flowing blessings. That's what hate was. God loved Jacob, and the blessings were going to flow. Over and over again, the blessings were going to flow. He was going to become rich. He was going to have a, a, a great line. He was going to, all these things were going to happen. God made these promises and he fulfills these promises. But with Esau, it was always going to be hard. The rejection of Esau because of his choice to sell, that was which was not his. When, it should have been a point, but it's not being promised to the side. Attempts at blessing are futile away from God. When you are away from God, when you're doing things apart from what God wants you to do, you're not going to be blessed by God. You may still get blessings, but those blessings probably aren't coming from God. They're probably coming from another source. Because the devil likes to bless too. Because if the devil can bless you for doing wrong, and those blessings seem greater than the blessings you're getting for doing right, he might be able to pull you down and keep you from doing the work that God has for you. And that's just the truth. Because the devil wants to tie us down. He wants to hold us down. He wants to put us somewhere where we're struggling, we're crying out, we're saying, I don't understand. That's where he wants us to be. And then we see people and they go, well, look, man, I'm being blessed. Oh, I got a new car. I got a new TV. 
I got a new job, I got this, I got that. I don't know where that came from. Maybe it came from God. But if you're not living where God wants you to be, maybe it didn't come from God. Maybe it came from somewhere else. And maybe they're trying to shackle you in that spot to put you back where you want to be. And then there's this point where God says to Israel, you're going to see something, and that's that God is God everywhere. Time. I don't want to go too long on this one, but God is God. That's a big thing for Israel because Israel thought God was God here. God is God where we are. God is God where the temple is. God is God as long as God's people is where God's people needs to be, but God is God everywhere. He says these things are going to happen so that you will see that the Lord is great even beyond the borders of Israel. That God isn't just God here. God isn't just God in First Baptist Church La Paya. God is God everywhere. He's God outside these doors. He's God in Mexico. He's God in Canada. He's God over in Europe. He's even God in Iraq, in India, in China, everywhere you want to go. God is God. It doesn't stop right here. And that's why we're called to go and take the message out there. They don't have to be here to hear about Jesus. But the world is full of noise. And the world wants everybody out there to hear what they're saying. And the world's always firing at people. And man, they're overwhelmed. But all it takes is that one voice. That one voice to say you are loved. You are accepted. As Charles Stanley told us this week, you are victorious. God isn't just God in the church. He's God in the workplace. He's God in the doctor's office. He's God in the restaurant. Remember that when you're leaving the tip. God is God everywhere. And how we live and how we react and the things that we do paints a picture of who God is. For those who weren't inside the church. Ask yourself this question. Every day. If somebody. Could only come to know Jesus through me. Would they want to be a part of what I have? We have a cat. Mama's cat. Absolutely hates me. I don't know why. It's the only animal I've ever had that will not come. I mean, have you seen those meme videos on Facebook that have that song where it goes, and then it runs? That's that's this cat. I mean, I had a video. I made a video of that at home. I had it. I mean, because the cat does that. I can be seen that. If the kids walk up with that cat, she goes. She's down because there's something about me she doesn't like. We gotta make sure that when people see us and they see the Jesus in us, we're not making them feel like they can. And they wanna be a part of what we're doing. They wanna be a part of the things that God has. 
Because it's just, it's amazing. As we begin this series, remember who it is that you can return to. A God who, who loves you so much that he's burdened to call you back to him. And it was unmerited, unchanging love. Man. There's. I have a file in my Dropbox that is my mama's voice message. Occasionally I'll I pull it out and listen to it. But the one thing that it doesn't say that I wish it did was the one thing she said to me every time I talked to her. I love you. With the book of Malachi, God is looking at us and he's saying, I love you. I love you. And though what I'm about to say to you may be hard, <laughs> it'll change your life for the better. Maybe this morning, maybe you've been just struggling. It's been a hard few weeks for a lot of people. Now's the time to say, okay, God, I can't do it on my own. I can't make, I can't do this. This isn't me. I gotta give it to you. Maybe this one you want to pray, the altar's open, I'll pray with you. Maybe you want to start a missions or ministry. Maybe you want to join this church and membership. Maybe this one you have something else you want to do. Maybe it's something I haven't even brought up and you just you've got to do it. Just follow what God says to do. But this morning, if you don't know Jesus. But I get to this point, I know sometimes I know I remember back when I was a youth, and I would always think, why does the preacher say that every week? Everybody in here is old as Methuselah, or, you know, or, I was, I was you know, 15, so I thought everybody was just ancient at that point. And he says it every week. Why? Well, here's the deal. Sitting in the garage doesn't make me a car. Sitting in the church doesn't make me a Christian. You don't know somebody's heart. My wife was married to me for what, five years? Something like that. When she walked down the aisle one Sunday morning after a sermon. <laughs> because I thought I had been saved, but now I need to make sure. So if the preacher's wife can get saved, anybody can get saved. This morning, if you need to know Jesus, you walk the aisle and say, Brother Troy, I want to know Jesus, and we'll go from there. But wherever you're at, whatever you need, give it to him. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you right now and we thank you and we praise you for your blessings.